Well, amen. Well, you may be seated, and if you have your Bible with you today, and if you're at home, I'd encourage you to find your place in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to be examining the verse of Scripture in verses 14 through 19, but today I want to start off by reading verse 14 for you, in just, or 15 in just a moment, but if you would, find your place there as I introduce the message today, and I titled it, The Crisis of Intellectualism. One of the many crises facing the church today is the aspect of intellectualism. Now, if any of you know me and you know my background, I am not anti-education by any means. Matter of fact, most of our staff, our staff, our pastor, our worship leader, and our discipleship pastor are seminary students working on their MDivs. Uh, I have gone to a little bit of seminary myself in the year, so I'm not against education. Matter of fact, Jesus talks to us and gives us the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them. So there's an aspect of our Christian walk in the church where we are to grow a very important fundamental part of being a believer in Christ and part of the body of Christ. But I would argue today, folks, that in today's church, we have placed a tremendous amount of emphasis on intellectualism as opposed to application of what the scripture is telling us. In our own understanding of the word crisis, again, let me define crisis for you. As we look at the definition of crisis on the screen, you'll see it in a moment. But crisis as itself can be described as a decisive moment, a turning point, something that is emotionally significant in our life, an unstable or crucial time or state of affairs. I would argue, folks, that we are in that area of our life right now where the definition of crisis is all around us. We can see it, we understand what it means, and we know that we're in a crisis of various degrees. This slide shows an image that I've been sharing with you for two sermons previously about this aspect of crisis and what's going on in the life around us. We see it on our news, we see it in our newspapers, we see it on our computer screens and our email. We see a tremendous amount of crisis as a society in America, even crisis that's affecting the church and whether or not you and I can legally be here today worshiping together because the state versus the authority of the church often weighs in, the issue of pro-life and pro-choice, the issue of can I gather and am I the church if we're only watching online, this issue of gender confusion, this issue of lawlessness that we see in the streets. Now, many ago that are proponents of education, like I am, would often tell us one of the main problems with society is we need to be educated. We need to grow in our understanding of knowledge. I would argue today we live in a society that is the most educated the most technologically advanced, the most information consumption that we have ever seen in our life. The researchers tell us this, 77, 77% of searches today for information are done on Google. They say that over 5 billion searches occur daily on that little bar called the Google bar, meaning the, the quest for information in our own society is rampant, and it is an unsatisfiable thirst that we as human beings have to know more. Folks, the cure for our world and what ails us cannot be education, while education is a part of understanding. I once heard a historian say that if you lose and forget your history, you are bound to repeat it. There's an important aspect of education, but we've already proven that we cannot educate our way out of poverty. While education may help us get employment, it may help us get a skill, but we know that we can't educate people out of poverty. There are plenty today that are sitting in different areas around the nation 
that have great education but are still living below the poverty level. We've also proven the fact that we can't educate ourselves out of racism. We're the smartest society ever to exist in terms of intellectual knowledge, but yet racism, hate, and other crimes continue to abound. Lawlessness abounds in our society. Even though we may increase in knowledge and understanding, it doesn't mean we have gotten away from the nature of man, which is that sin nature in all of us, in every single person. So what is intellectualism? Let me give you a definition of how we would define intellectualism. Intellectualism is is known as the devotion to the exercise of intellect or to intellectual pursuits to give rational form or content to. Now, when we gather together for small groups and study in Bible school, when we come together, we're hoping to increase our biblical understanding of the text on how we can understand what God's plan is for you and I. But folks, I once heard it said that power is, knowledge is not power. How many of you have ever heard that statement, that knowledge is power? Well, I would argue the man that said it had it better or more accurately described that the application of knowledge is power. See, that's where the rubber meets the road for us even as a church. It's not the pursuit of intellectualism, of being able to know all of the scriptures and having them memorized and passing the the test that I can stand before you and rattle off all of the doctrinal truths of faith. The question for you and I is, are we living the doctrinal truths? Are we applying what we are learning in the church today to our daily life and as a church? Folks, I would argue if we had greater application of the text in our daily life as a body of Christ, man, we could conquer the world for Jesus. Amen? We wouldn't have needs like budget concerns. We wouldn't have to teach on the issues of tithing and giving to the church We wouldn't have to hold conferences where church discipline was administered amongst its congregation. We wouldn't have disunity amongst deacons and deacon groups and families and teachers. And the issues of conflict that we see in the church today are often a result of the fact that we have increased in intellect, but yet we have decreased in application. We're going to learn today from from what Paul is teaching his protege, his young son in the faith, Timothy, this aspect of what we are to do with what we are taught through the word of God. In 1982, a futurist by the name and an inventor, Buckminster Fuller, and here's a slide that I want to share with you about the increase of intellectualism and the pursuit of knowledge. Fuller says this, he estimated that up until 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century. But by 1945, it was doubling about every 25 years. And by 1982, it was doubling every 12 to 13 months. In retrospect, as of 2019, experts now estimate that human knowledge will double every 12 hours. The amount of information that you see on that slide where the green bars are going up is a visual representation of how much we know today and how much we are consuming information and how smarter our intellect is. But yet we have tremendous challenges as a nation, as a society, and I would argue as a church. Ravi Zacharias and his international ministry to share and proclaim the gospel was known as one of the greatest apologists of all times. Now, apologist doesn't mean he gave an apology for what he believed. It meant that he gave a defense for the gospel. He was able to display and demonstrate to those with great wisdom and intellect. One of his greatest audiences would often be a college campus. And he would go around. He, didn't, he wasn't prejudiced. He would go to Harvard. He would go to Yale. He would go wherever. 
And he would have an open mic session and allow people from the floor to ask their questions. Highly educated men and women, but yet they lacked the basic understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Robbie would explain his ministry the following. He would say that his ministry model was this, helping the thinker believe and helping the believer think. Isn't that a great statement? You see, there's a part of intellectualism that helps us understand the full deity, the full greatness of God's plan for his creation, who Jesus was and why repentance was needed. I would argue in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, if we go all the way back to the fall, many of us in church are familiar with this issue of Adam and woman and their disobedience to God and where they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, surely God's promise and his command to them that you would die came true. But it's interesting when we're looking at the crisis in the American church today of this issue of intellectualism. Have you ever thought about what caused woman and man to eat of that fruit? You dig a little deeper into Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, and let me read it for you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to, their, to the eyes, now listen to this part, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, part of that desire that caused the fall of humanity was our quest for knowledge, our quest for wisdom. As the serpent, the crafty, the cunning one deceived woman and said, when you eat of it, you'll be like God. Folks, I'd argue there are many today that look at the scriptures because they want to be like God. They don't want to be like Christ. They don't want to be the suffering servant, but they want to be like God and increase in their knowledge so I want to share with you 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. If you're there, say amen. Let's read and see what the scriptures tell us about this issue, about what we are to do to apply this wisdom and this intellect of scripture in our daily life. Picking up in 2 Timothy 2, 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Let's pray together. So Father God, we thank you for the day. Father, we thank you for the time to gather together to open your scripture, or to read it, to apply it to our life. And Father, I pray that as we grow in intellect, Father, you will help us to grow in application in our daily life. Help us to follow you. Help us to be a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, we praise you. We thank you. Have your way in all that is said and done. Bring conviction to the heart. Bring comfort to the soul. And bring a challenge to us all. We praise it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me share with you why this is so important, this issue of knowledge and intellectualism. There was an issue in the first century church called Gnosticism, and I promise this isn't meant to be a history lesson, but we've got to put this in the context. Now you would think, and often the argument goes, if I could just have seen the miracles of Jesus, I would have believed. If I would have just been around the early apostles and seen the fervor of Saul of Tarsus, if I'd have seen the fervor of Peter, if I'd have seen the fervor of James, if I'd have seen the powers that was going on when they were speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit came upon them, boy, that would help strengthen my faith. I would know more and I would understand more. There was a sect during that first and second and third century of the early church known as Gnosticism. It was a quest for knowledge. The very word Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, stands for the understanding of the increase of knowledge. And there was a group from within that sect, if you will. Some would argue that perhaps it came about before the Christian church. 
But nonetheless, the first century, we saw the rise in Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the increase of the desire for knowledge to come. A variety of second century AD religions whose participants believed that people could only be saved through revealed knowledge or gnosis. Gnostics also held a negative view of the physical and material world. Early church fathers such as Irenaeus deemed Gnosticism heretical. What exactly did Gnostics believe? Let me share this with you today so you'll understand some of the dangers of the pursuit of intellectualism as opposed to what the scriptures are telling us. Here's what Gnostics believed. That Christ is a spiritual, divine being from the Father's realm who comes to the world to reveal the Father and the true identity of spiritual ones. Christ did not become incarnate or suffer on the cross. Instead, he either merely seemed to be human or temporarily inhabited a human being named Jesus. Gnosticisms believe that knowledge leads to salvation. Folks, I'd argue there are many today when you read polls such as George Barna and others that ask and poll evangelical Christians about the resurrection of Jesus. It's an alarming thing to me when I see that around 37% of those who call themselves evangelical Christians do not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are those who do not believe that Jesus, fully man and fully God, actually died on the cross of Calvary. There are those who believe that Jesus was a man, but yet his incarnate spirit of the Son left him during the resurrection, much like the Gnostics believed during the first and second century. Folks, there is confusion going on even amongst church folks today about the true deity of who Jesus Christ was. And the fact that he was fully God and fully man, that he truly died, D-E-D, he was dead on the cross. He was laid in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, he rose from the dead and physically appeared before over 500 other brothers. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, If you don't believe me, go to Jerusalem and see for yourself, for many are still alive. Paul saying, no, it really happened. This meeting on the mountaintop in Galilee where Jesus summoned his disciples before he ascended into the, into the heavens actually took place. Folks, there are people today that refuse to believe because they are too smart to understand and believe in the elementary truths that sin must be atoned for and that perfect atonement came only through Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Well, preacher, do you really believe that? That's kind of foolish in the world we live in today. We're smarter today than they were in the first century. We may have greater intellect, but I would argue we are far from the truth if we refuse to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. doesn't matter how smart you are. God made it to where the, the lowest person with the least amount of intellect could understand the scriptures and come to a salvation knowledge of Jesus Christ through the repentance of their sin and believing that he is, not was, but he is the Christ, the Messiah, the very promised one. So I want to share with you today four things that we're going to see as we examine verses 14 through 19 together. I want to address this issue of the crisis of intellectualism in the church today. Number one, we're going to see that there are attitudes of intellectualism, attitudes that we have within the church, but there's also an aptitude of increase that intellectualism gives us that we are called to have as we increase that aptitude. But there are also things that I call the alarm of ignorance that we need to understand and reflect upon when we hear these things amongst us as the body of Christ. And then lastly, the assurance that we have 
of the I am, Jesus Christ himself, God in flesh, God incarnate. So picking up in verse 14, if your Bible, if you've got your Bible still open, chapter 2, 2 Timothy, verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Now, Apostle Paul is writing this letter. He's wrote two to this, this young man by the name of Timothy. In chapter, verse, excuse me, the first book, 1 Timothy, he gives a bunch of instructions about how to, how to lead the church and other things that are going on. Now, this second letter is often referred to as the Apostle Paul's last will and testament, if you will. He leaves his parting instructions knowing that his end times are near. And you would think that if somebody's going to take the time to leave their last will and testament, that they're going to write down some pretty important things that they want to pass on. And young Timothy being a minister, one that Paul has commissioned and sent to plant churches and to find elders and to develop the church and to teach the church, here he's reminding this young Timothy, as he's reminding you and I, of the importance of what is going on and the attitudes that we have in our intellectualism. Paul doesn't forsake the Scriptures. Paul was a student of the Old Testament Scriptures. He studied under one of the greatest known rabbis of his day. He was absolutely one who believed in wisdom and understanding and knowledge, but knowledge that comes from God, not from man. Notice in verse 14, he gives them a command, uh, an imperative right off the bat to remind them. Now, who are the them? He's talking about the church. He's telling Timothy, remind the church about the fundamental issues that we need to have correct. You see, in there is an aspect that we need to grow in our understanding of the scriptures. This is not an antithesis against intellectualism per se, but it's a, it's a position that says we've got to understand how to apply what it is we're learning. And I would argue often we see four responses in the church that detract from the very gospel that Paul is reminding Timothy to teach them these things so they don't quarrel about words which do no good. Now, if many of you know me, I like words, amen? I'm not short of them either. We could go on for hours today, right? But I want to share with you the things that we don't want to do and the attitudes that sometimes we can see within the church. Number one, the condescending attitude. A condescending attitude. Another means of being puffed up in our understanding that I know more than you. Why should you speak? I need to teach this class. Because I know more, obviously. I've gone to school. I've been trained. I have the degrees and the certificates. Who are you to tell me what that should mean? I can speak the languages. What do you know about it? You see, when that attitude comes up in the church, it often does exactly what Paul was saying here in verse 14. It causes those to quarrel. It does not cause good, but it only ruins the attitude of what's happening. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul is discussing these issues to the Corinthian church, and he says this. He says, I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. He's talking about how he's living his life, his code of conduct, his righteousness, his hardship, his heartbreak, all of those things that went on in his own personal ministry, not only himself, but Apollos. You see, the Corinthian church is starting to argue over who's the better, Apollos or Paul. Paul says, I didn't baptize any of you to my knowledge except this guy. Uh, other than that, I do not know who I baptized, but it's not about me or Apollos. It's about Jesus. Jesus gives the increase. He says, I've applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, 
that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. You ever see churches sometimes go beyond what is written? We begin to be like the Pharisees where we start to implement our own policies and practices, and we call it tradition, and we adhere to them, and often the traditions of man begin to override the scriptural mandates of what the church is. Paul is warning us here, this condescending attitude, that we know better than God does. Folks, I, I would argue with you that I'd just as soon keep us, keep us between Genesis and Revelation. Amen? I'd say we stay between the covers of the Word of God, and let's run the church that way. And I'd argue if we do, we'd have a whole lot less challenge, and we'd have a whole lot less condescending attitudes if we just do what Paul reminds us here in this verse. Let us not go beyond what is written. Now, not everything's written, and I understand that. There's some lead way that God gives us in grace and wisdom. There's a reason God appoints some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. I get it. There's a point where why God gives some of us to be teachers and deacons and servants and, and other giftings to use them for the edification of the body. But I still argue, brothers and sisters, let us not go beyond what is written in the text. Not only can there be a condescending attitude at times in the church, but there can also be a contentious attitude. A contentious attitude where my way is better than your way or we shouldn't allow that or we shouldn't allow this. Often those things stem from our own presuppositions. Those things, the baggage, I call it, of our life's experiences that we bring into our church context or into our Sunday school context or even into your community when you're raised outside of it. You bring your own concept of how life should occur. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is going on and he's, he's sharing with the church this issue of, issue of man as the head of the family and woman and her not having her head covered in church and that because of her long hair, it's supposed to be covered as she comes into church. And he goes on this dialogue about this issue of men's roles and women's roles. You can read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1, and all the way through the end of it. But here's the neatest thing about that entire passage in verse 16. Here's what Paul says about this issue of how to avoid a contentious attitude. He says this, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now he's laying out what is best for the church to do, but he says at the end of all of that, if anybody wants to be contentious about these little issues, then we have no traditions. None. He says, if your tradition is keeping people away from knowing the salvation of Jesus Christ, from hearing the true gospel being preached, and if your issues and the way you're doing business is causing that, then we don't have any traditions such as those. Neither do the churches of God. Isn't that interesting? How Paul diffuses the contentious attitude that can be within the church. What's he do? He reverts them back to the scripture and says, hey, if this is causing an issue for you, you don't have to do those things. Let's not be contentious in our fellowship together. But thoroughly notice there's a contradicting attitude that can be found sometimes in the church. Now, what do I mean by contradicting? Well, he said one thing and he said another, and all of a sudden we've got this great church word that I believe originated in the church called split, called chasm, called schism, where we have caused a divide amongst the body. I heard one, one individual recently say that God allows church splits to be the mechanism for which he uses to plant other churches. Now, let me share with you my thoughts on that for just a minute. 
Now, I do believe other churches get planted because of splits that are in the church, and often those churches become unhealthy churches, the very thing that caused them to split in the first place. I believe God can take what man meant for evil and use it for good. I can believe God can take broken people and use them for good, and church plants do often occur because of that. Matter of fact, they go right next door and start competing for the same people. They couldn't win in the first place. Here's how I believe God plants churches. He builds up the body through edification. He increases the body's wisdom and understanding of the scriptures. Then he calls men and women to lead the church. And that church makes a conscious effort that we are going to plant a church by taking those we have trained internally and we send them to plant that church and we support and strengthen that church almost like a surrogate mother. We're taking care of and providing the nurture until they are able to stand on their own two legs. And once they're able to stand, they repeat the process and become deliberate church planters. Folks, I believe that's God's method of planting his church, where it's deliberate. It's not out of contradiction. It's not out of an issue that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, the issue of doctrinal integrity. Let me read what Timothy tells us, what Paul's telling Timothy about this. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction amongst people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see, there's a contradicting attitude that we can find in the church, but it need not be that way. So let me share with you what it should be. What's the correct attitude look like? The correct attitude, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, as Paul is introducing this letter that he writes to the Corinthian church, he reminds them of his thesis for life, I would argue. His life statement, if you will, it goes like this. And when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. You see, he's already saying what I didn't do. I didn't come with eloquence of words, lofty speech, or worldly wisdom. He says in verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen? The main thing, keep the main thing. Don't get distracted by the little deviations that we like to take down a rabbit hole. This Greek word said that. This Hebrew word says this. Well, it really means that. Well, this translation has it this way. Now, folks, those can have benefit in our edification. And if you know me on Wednesday nights, I love those things as we expound and increase and edify the body for greater understanding. But let us be like Paul, for I decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Folks, that's strong, ain't it? Folks, that's the correct attitude that we take on this issue of intellectualism. That everything that we have and everything that we are and everything we know is because of God's Holy Spirit that dwells within you and me. And He gives some of us the opportunity to serve as teachers. He gives some of us the ability with intellect and wisdom, but thank God he doesn't give that to all of us, amen? Some of us he gives the heart of service, the heart of grace, the heart of mercy, the heart of prayer, the heart 
of other things, the heart to teach in the nursery, the heart to love and hold little babies while they're crying away from their mother, while you and I are in here worshiping together. Isn't it wonderful that God doesn't all make us teachers, but yet we can all learn from the Scriptures. It's wonderful when we see the Scriptures being lived out in the life of the body. Let me leave you with this. Our attitude in Christ bears witness for Christ. Not being puffed up, but rather taking Paul's position. We know nothing but Christ crucified. But secondly, let me share with you this issue of aptitude, of increase. Look at with me in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who needs, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now let me define aptitude for you. An inclination or a tendency, a natural ability or talent, a capacity for learning, general suitability, aptness for something. Now notice at the beginning of this text, I find it interesting. You don't find many places where the Bible is telling us to do something on our own with our own desire for it. But notice he says, do your best. Were you ever told that growing up in school by one of your parents? When you were stressed out about that exam that you had to take or that thing that you had to do or that science county fair project that you had to work on and you kind of did it at the last minute, just share my testimony, right? And you remember the encouraging words of your parent or your teacher that said, just do your best. Because that's all that's required out of each of us, right? To do your best. Let me share with you five ways to improve your aptitude for Jesus. Number one, do your best. The scripture actually means and actually tells us in this Greek word spudezo to be eager for something, to have or show keen interest, an intense desire, an impatient expectancy. About like a woman when she gets to that nine month of pregnancy, she's got about two weeks left. Every day needs to be the day that this baby comes. There's an impatientness of expectancy that this needs to be over. Amen. This child needs to be here. I am ready for it to end. Folks, think about that in our own spiritual walk. As, as Timothy's being admonished here, told to do your best, you and I are to do our best. We are to have an impatient expectancy to do something with intense effort and motivation. Here's the word we don't like too much in our culture today. We are to work hard to do one's best at whatever endeavor that God has set before us. Now that's not counter-biblical, folks, when we see this issue of we are to work hard. Now, let me clarify what we work for. We work for the faithfulness we desire to show to our Lord and Savior. We don't work for our salvation, for it's a gift of God, lest no man shall boast. It's by grace and by faith and faith alone we come to Christ. By faith we have salvation. When we repent of our sin, we believe upon Jesus Christ, and we begin to follow him and carry our cross daily, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But what we are to do is we are to work hard to do our very best. I remember teaching Sunday school years ago when I first started teaching, and, and I'll just be honest with you, there are some Sundays where you just don't give it your 100%, amen? Life happens, work weeks, hectic schedules, things happen at home, wife, children, all the normal life stuff happens. See, you know one thing I learned early on, that life didn't stop when I became a Christian? It got a little more complex, didn't it? I started to see more of what was going on. And there were some Sundays where you know, I didn't exactly give my best in that sermon or in that, that Bible teaching in that class 
I really relied on others in the class to help me go along. You ever have that day where you come to church and you just you know you haven't given it your best, but I'm here. Folks, God is telling us, give it our best. Life is short. We have such a short period of time to prepare for such a long period of time. Think about that. God gives us this time in this season of our life to prepare us for all of eternity, for us to be faithful with what we have. So how do we improve our aptitude, our inclination, our natural ability and talents? You ever seen a gifted sports athlete that are in the professional athletic field? and they're scoring that game-winning basketball shot, or they're hitting that perfect birdie on the final drive, underdog in the golf tournament, and they hit that one shot that was just incredible, and they sink it, they get a hole in one. You ever see a baseball player that throws somebody out from center field, catches the pop fly that was going over the fence, and then turns around and throws out the guy that was running for home base? You ever think about those athletes for a minute, that they didn't just get to that place in their professional career without all the hard work? that led up to it. What we don't see is how many times that golfer hit the ball and it went in the wrong direction. We don't see how many times that basketball player made that same shot on the same location in the court and it bounced off the rim. We often don't see all the work and the preparation that gets us to that moment for that defining event that takes place in our life. But we know that it happened, otherwise you wouldn't have gotten there. Imagine what God is doing with each and every one of us today as we work hard for him to bring us to that crucible point of our life, that pinnacle event or activity in our life, where now it's your turn to step up to the plate. It's your turn to get your stance right on the ball. It's your turn to posture yourself properly to make the shot that counts, a game winner or a dud. Folks, the work that goes into it, Paul is reminding us to do our best. Why do we have got to do our best? Number two, Notice the issue that here we find in the scriptures that we would need to stand the test. Now, what do I mean by stand the test? Notice he says to present yourself to God as one approved. Stand the test. Genuine. When he says to be proved, approved, it's that issue of a compelling recognition, one of being proven genuine. Now, if you've ever gone and shopped for a, a ring for your significant other and you wanted to get her one of those things that lasted a lifetime, one of those diamonds... Now, you'll know that the way a jeweler will examine a diamond is he'll pick up the diamond on his little black felt mat, little tweezers, and he'll put this little optical device on his eye. And then he'll bring that diamond real close under a light, and he'll begin to examine that diamond for clarity, for color, for, for other imperfections that may be there. And the greater that diamond is in its clarity, in its color, in its lack of imperfections, the higher the grade that that diamond is assessed. Gentlemen, that's why you pay more for certain diamonds, right? Don't buy that cubic zirconia. It's not going to work out good for you, right? But the aspect in our spiritual walk is the same way, that we stand the test as if when we stand before God, we can show ourselves approved as he examines our life. He's going to examine that we are pure, clear, clarity, colored properly. We have done the work that he has called us to, that we can indeed stand the test not of man, but the test of God. But thirdly, we're to use what we have. Notice the word worker is here. A worker, ergates, the person who works at specific occupation, usually for pay. Now you say, well, you know what, preacher, I'm off the hook. I don't get paid for this. Oh, yes, you do. Your rewards are out of this world. 
You've got a benefit plan that this earth couldn't begin to compensate for you. There are riches and treasures stored up for you in heaven that the eye and the mind can't even begin to think of the glory. You know what it means to be an heir to the kingdom of God? It means everything that God has prepared for you and I before the foundations of the world has begun, has begun waits for you and I one day in perfection, and we will inherit the very things of God, the streets of gold, the crystal sea. We will live in the dwelling place that God has prepared for us with Him together, not in a separate dwelling place. Together in the Father's house, we will worship with Him because we are heirs to the kingdom of God. Use what you have. Don't wait for what you don't. God has gifted you uniquely. He's gifted me uniquely. And wouldn't the church be much more blessed if every person used what they had in service to the Lord? Use what I got. We don't need that. We already got one. Adrian Rogers would say this, anything without a head is dead. And anything with more head than one is a freak. It's interesting, ain't it? Use the gift you have. Where you are is what Paul is telling us. Use what you've got. Number four, lift up your head. I remember when I was a soldier, we'd be marching along and singing those cadences. And one of the famous lines was, there's no discharge on the ground. Meaning, pick your head up, look where you're going to see what's ahead of you. Same thing in our spiritual walk. Sometimes we like to get down and we put our head down and we hang it in shame. Maybe we have that horrible sin failure one week where we have just failed God miserably and we think we're no good. God can't possibly use me anymore. Folks, you know when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, when you gave your life to him and repented of your sins, Jesus not only forgave you for the sins of your past, but the sins of your present and the sins of your future. If you are a child of God and you repent of those sins, God has forgiven you. Why do we wallow in our misery? I argue, I think I know why we like it, folks. There are some folks that love to wallow in their misery because it's the only place they feel comfortable. Much like Jesus when he went to the, the lame man by the pool of Bethsaida who was injured, who was, who was born that way. The scriptures tell us 38 years he had these defects that couldn't allow him to be like everybody else. 38 years. And Jesus asked him, do you want to be well? And the story tells us the rest of the scripture. The man immediately begins to make excuses. Well, I got no one to pick me up. And when the spirit stirs the water, no one's there to put me in it. Jesus says, no, I didn't ask you about all your excuses. You see, we like to waller in our pity. It's often because that's what we know. It's our comfort zone. This guy laid there and said, you know, I got people to bring me food. There's people to bring me money. There's people to help meet my needs. Someone puts me here. Someone takes me home. I wouldn't know what to do outside of that, so I'd just soon stay right in that situation. Jesus says, do you want to be well? You see, there's a choice that we have to make. Pick up your mat and walk, Jesus tells the man. It don't get no better than that. But often we like to have our head down. I'd argue, folks, to increase our aptitude for Jesus, we need to lift our head up. Not be ashamed. We need to be ashamed. Why? Because we can do the last part. We can cut straight to the chase. What do I mean by cut straight to the chase? The scripture, the actual word means rightly dividing, handling, applying, teaching the living word of truth. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father except by Him. When we have the ability to cut straight in our doctrinal integrity and our understanding, then we have the ability to tell people to live by the very promises that God has given us. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let me share with you an illustration about cutting straight. I had a driveway poured at my home 
and I kind of helped out with it a little bit, right? And the concrete man, when he gave me the price, I thought, this is fantastic. This, is, this price is several thousand dollars less than the next guy, and I'll probably go with this guy. Now, I understood I would probably pay for that later, right? So he begins to pour my concrete, and things are not quite working out the way I wanted to. But long story short, he gets to the point where he's going to cut my joints in concrete and cut a line in the concrete. And I thought it was often it was a little funny that he had included the price that he would cut the concrete too, because normally they charge you by the inch when cutting concrete with a diamond bit. I'm thinking, okay, well, hey, that's a great deal for me. Well, I come home one day while he's cutting these relief joints, and he's out there with a little four-inch angle grinder just freehanding some relief joints in my driveway. Now, here's a couple problems with that, and it relates back to our spiritual life. Number one, when we don't use the proper technique, it produces ragged lines. They're not cut straight. They look like the Mississippi River, right? But the second damaging thing is not the fact that the line itself is crooked, but the fact that the blade didn't go deep enough. Now, hang on, hang on with me for just a minute. You see, when you're cutting concrete, the blade's got to cut, but so deep into that slab. And see, the purpose of cutting the joint is so that when the ground shifts underneath of it and it moves, the concrete's going to crack. We call them control joints for a reason. So that when I cut deep enough and the ground shifts, they crack under the surface along that cut, and I control it so that it cuts and cracks where I want it to. You see, when we don't cut the joint deep enough, the crack will jump, and the force of the pressure will jump that little indent you made in the concrete, and it'll begin to ruin the rest of the concrete, which is what's happening today. You see, he didn't cut it deep enough. How do I tie that back spiritually? Folks, when our faith and our understanding of the Scriptures are so shallow that if we don't go deep enough in our understanding of the Scripture, when a little fissure comes and a little turbulence in our, in our life starts to move and shake the ground we're standing on, what happens is the relief joint of Christ isn't deep enough in our own life, and that crack jumps the joint and begins to wreck our foundation. Folks, our Scripture and our understanding of the Scriptures has to be deep so that it can do the very work of God in our lives, producing righteousness. We've got to be able to cut straight and understand. Last point, your altitude, your altitude will never rise above your aptitude. Your altitude will never rise above your aptitude. Every one of us have an aptitude that is God-given for us to learn, to grow, to understand. So we can indeed cut straight and be deep and withstand the pressures of this world. But thirdly, there's alarm that the Scriptures tell us we need to have. And I know I only get to preach once today, so I'm going to go a little long. Is that okay? The alarm of ignorance. Now, when growing up, you, had, you remember the Smokey the Bear commercials? I remember seeing that, and I didn't understand it as a kid, but you know, now that I watch the news out west and the dryness of what's happening out in many of our countries as these forest fires are raging, but I still remember Smokey the Bear coming on in the National Forest Service announcement, only you can prevent forest fires. You remember that growing up? Well, let me share with you how we can prevent the alarm of forest fires, the alarm of ignorance in our own life. Look at verse 16 through, 9, through 18 with me. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermanius and Philetus, who have swerved from the faith that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. You see, some, some are very shallow. They crack easy. 
Three ways to silence the alarm of spiritual ignorance. Number one, keep your speech sacred, not sizzling. Think about that. We, we, have, an op- we have an obligation as the body of Christ, as the church, that when we speak with others and we, we proclaim the goodness of what God has done in our life, we need to do so vacation with good speech that honors Christ, not with sizzling speech. Many of you may have had someone in the church that has, starts to have a little difficulty with the pastor or with the Sunday school teacher or with one of the deacons, and next thing you know, you two go out to lunch together, and all of a sudden, that guy's just laying it on, man, how the pastor's all jacked up, how the church is all messed up. And then next thing you know, you find yourself starting to ask the same questions. Well, maybe he is wrong. Maybe, maybe that isn't right. Maybe, man, and I'm just, you find yourself all jacked up. You see, Paul understood this was happening. He says, but avoid irreverent babble. Irreverent babble, meaning profane, characterized by violating the sacred character of someone or something. You see, we need not do that. We've got to be careful that we are, everything we say and everything we speak is edifying to the body. Now, that's not to say, folks, that we can't disagree about something. A healthy church can disagree. A healthy church can have a meeting together, and a deacon's meeting, where we don't all see eye to eye on something, but we still love one another in Christ. We can respect other positions and what's going on. We can come to a unifying understanding so that we can move forward with the main thing, which is I came to know nothing and preach nothing but Christ crucified. Folks, that's what we should all call as our mantra. But secondly, to ensure our dialogue is deity worthy. What are we talking about? He says he uses the word babble or prattle in its Greek tense. Idle, foolish, irreverent talk, especially empty of any edifying value. The word ungodliness that we find in this aspect of Scripture means impiety. Unrighteousness by virtue of not giving proper respect for a God or a God's institutions. Folks, when we begin to talk bad about the church, we begin to talk bad about our leadership, when we begin to talk in this way, it is not dialogue worthy of deity. Because remember, who is the church and who is the head? We are the church. Christ is the head. If you talk bad about one, you talk bad about all, to include Christ as the head. Folks, I just assume handle that manner in a worthy way. Jesus gives us plenty of instructions on how to deal with church conflict. You can turn to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, and you can find how Jesus himself said we should deal with conflict. But if our dialogue is not deity worthy, then we can sound the alarm of our own ignorance of not understanding the scriptures. But thirdly, we need a disciple against deviousness, devious doctrine. Be a disciple against devious doctrine. It goes back to the discipleship issue. A true follower of Christ I find it interesting that nowhere did Jesus tell us to grow his church. Nowhere did he tell us to have people join his church. What he did tell us, though, was go and make disciples of all nations, followers of Jesus. Last point, you can only, only you, only you, as Smokey the Bear would say, only you can prevent forest fires. James would remind us that the tongue is like a great flame, like a rudder on a ship. It's a little tiny thing, but man, can it dictate the way the boat travels? Only you can prevent forest fires. Lastly, let me share with you the aspect of the assurance that we have, the assurance of I am. Now, we know that's one of the great statements of Jesus that he says, I am. When Moses said, who shall I say sent me? God tells Moses, say that I am has sent you. I am. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. 
And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Two things we can find in this text. Number one, our foundation is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, if you jot that down in your notes, real quickly, that scripture gives us this understanding. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. You know, we love the concept of we come to the Lord's house and we gather together and worship Solomon, even when he dedicated the temple that he built that his father David had, had designed and had planned and had dreamt up and felt led to do. But Solomon gets to build it, and when he dedicates the temple, Solomon in his prayer says, So, Lord, that when foreigners pass by this place, they can point their eyes towards your temple and know that you are the God. Folks, you know where God's Spirit dwells now? He dwells inside of you and me. Not by anything made by the human hands, but rather by His hands in which He made you and I the Spirit to dwell with inside of us. Secondly, the assurance that we have, John's Gospel reminds us that the shepherd knows his sheep. The shepherd knows his sheep, and he goes after his sheep. John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. You see this assurance that we have? The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let me focus on that last part for a minute. Here's what Paul would write to Timothy in chapter 3 of this same, this same book. He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come tires of dif- times of difficulty, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and lead astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Folks, I would argue the crisis in the American church today, uh, this strife for intellectualism as we continue to grow. More seminaries today than ever in our history. More college-level education than ever in our history. But yet our application is falling short. So what's the key point takeaway? It's the intercession of Christ on Calvary, not the intellect of man that offers redemption. How can we be right with God? It's through Christ, through his cross, through his death. The crisis of the American church is thinking our increase of intellect equates to our increase of righteousness. Study and show thyself approved, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let that be our, our challenge as we move forward into this new year as it's upcoming upon us. Let us understand that it is not our intellect that makes us righteous, but rather what Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. Study and show thyself approved. But folks, let's apply what we've learned so we can indeed stand before God, an approved workman that need not be ashamed.